Hey there, travelers. I'm Riley. I'm Isabella. I'm Angelica. And this is True Crime International. Our music should just be Riley clearing her throat. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why it happens every time we go to record. I can't even do... Mm, That just sounded (laughs) fucked up. Anyway, so Riley, where are you taking us today? Today we are going to Poland, which I'm really excited about because I've always actually wanted to go there in real life. And I was supposed to go this past summer, but... Obviously, that didn't work out because of COVID, but I have a lot of heritage from there. My grandma's 100% Polish, so I've always been super interested, but, you know, in the food. I mean, the food has just got to be incredible. (laughs) But our story begins in the forest of the southwest corner of Poland. There is a river there called the Otter River, and it's pretty far from any like town or city, but the closest major city is Wrocław, which if you're looking at it, looks like Roklaw, just so everyone doesn't get confused. Um, And this river is really only accessed by fishermen. So on a chilly December 10th morning in the year 2000, three men were on an inlet of the river and they were fishing together. And one of the men noticed that something was floating by the shore and At first, he thought it was just a log, but he walked over and he kind of poked it to check because it seemed a little out of place. And he thought that he had saw or seen some hair. And this is when they realized that it was actually a body floating. It's never a log. I know. It's never a log. It's It's never a a mannequin. (laughs) It's never a log. I'm never, ever, ever going to poke anything that looks suspicious. Just I'm going to immediately run away did you see that TikTok <laughs> i don't even want to investigate months ago did you see that tiktok for months ago where those uh um, yeah, kids wait. in seattle they were uh what's it called um that app that takes you to random places random nodding random nod they were random and it took them to uh some like rocky shores in seattle and they found a suitcase that smelled mm-hmm. bad and they opened it no and there was a body wasn't there yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were two bodies in there. I mean, they were in yeah. plastic bags, so they didn't see anything. But they said when they opened it, the smell was unbelievable. And I was, oh my God, I was just scrolling no. through TikTok. And I found that. And I was like, how is this on TikTok? That's crazy. But that they so did actually figured out who they figured out who the people were and who killed them. And the person is going to prison. Oh, so that's good. good. Cool. They got some justice. Yeah, I'm glad. And those kids are scarred for life. Good for them. Yay. Yeah, definitely. So these men immediately called the police, and what the police uncovered was the dead body of a man who had had his hands bound behind his back with a rope, and then the rope looked like it had also at one point been connected to the noose that was around his neck. So, like, they had tied whoever killed him, had tied his hands behind his back and used the same rope and wrapped it around his neck and tied a noose knot so that it was like some weird contraption that hurt you anytime you tried to move essentially um 
There were also injuries and marks on his body that indicated torture or like a severe beating. So his leg was broken, his face was badly bruised, and there were signs that his limbs had been intentionally overextended to inflict pain. Which sounds awful. Like, even when you bend your finger back too hard, that's just... I hate mm. that. Mm. I remember uh, Don's class when I was a kid, uh, teachers would, like, press down on us when we were doing the splits yeah. to try and get us to go down further, and that was a lot. Yeah, I know. This also makes me think of I have acrylic nails on right now, and uh, one of them <laughs> is falling off. Like, my whole nail is falling off. And every time I talk about it, my dad's like, that's why they go for your fingernails in Chinese torture. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And oh, he's yeah, like, they, yeah. They shove uh, little pieces of bamboo in your fingernails. Oh, my God. I don't, I, know, I don't even want I to talk about I can't take it. what's uh, happening to your nail seriously, though. I don't know why, but, like, every time you bring it up, it's just so funny to me. <laughs> no, dude, it's literally falling off my nail. <laughs> out of here. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. This man that they found also had no food in his stomach, which meant that he had basically been starved for days leading up to his murder. And there was fluid in his lungs, which meant that when he was thrown in the river, he was probably still alive and drowned. So, like, this was a long process, whatever happened yes, to him. Definitely. Yikes. Definitely. The police identified the man as Darius Yanishevsky, the owner of a small advertising agency who had been reported missing four weeks earlier by his wife. Darius lived in that major city of Wrocław, and he was last seen leaving his business on November 13th. The police did open a major investigation, and even though Darius was a well-respected person in his community, the police didn't really have any leads, and the investigation, unfortunately, just went cold. In 2003, there was, like, a special on a TV show about um, the murder to kind of put it back into the spotlight, and there were unusual views from places like South Korea, the United States, and Japan, but those didn't really give police any new leads because there were just views from different countries. They had nothing to do with the case. And... Before going into the next portion of the story, I'm actually going to have Isabella tell y'all a little bit about um, the chief inspector who was in charge of the cold case, Yasik Roblevsky. After graduating from high school in 1984, Roblevsky spent a few years looking for his purpose in life, and he worked a wide variety of jobs. He was a soldier and an aircraft mechanic. He also worked as a locksmith and a municipal clerk. And much to the dismay of the Communist Party, he was also a union organizer. The Communist Party fell a short time later, and in 1994, Wroblewski joined the police force. The pay for policemen in Poland was, and remains, pretty terrible. But even though Wroblewski had a wife and two kids by this time, he felt like he'd finally found his path. And as a devout Catholic, he felt as though he had a really good grasp of right and wrong, and he loved chasing criminals. He really loved it. <laughs> During his spare time, Wroblewski studied psychology at a local university in order to better understand the criminal mind. So he was all in. He oh, loved yeah, he was job. in it to win it, for sure. I like that he is, like, educating himself on the mm -hmm. psychological aspect because I feel like that just doesn't happen all the time, even though it should. Yeah. 
And this is so not important, but it made me laugh. Um, at the police station, his colleagues had a nickname for him. Because Yasek in English is Jack and Robold translates to Sparrow, his colleagues called him Jack Sparrow. To which Jack Sparrow would reply that he was more of an eagle, which I just really, <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so good. Now I have the song stuck in my head. Um, dun, 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 dun. And you know um, how they did it on SNL uh, with Andy Samberg and someone else <gasps> who played Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, it was Michael so fucking Bolton. funny. Yes, it was so oh, funny. So good. I'll watch that later. As Roblevsky looked over the case for the first time, he kept an eye out for an overlooked clue because that's typically what leads to the re- resolution of cold cases. You know, someone looks at it later. They find something that someone else missed, you know. For sure. That kind of narrative. Um, a couple of things that stood out to him were the level of brutality in this case. The fact that Darius had been stripped of his clothing and that Darius's credit cards had not been used after he had gone missing at all, meaning that this wasn't just a robbery. They didn't want to want to take his money. The first two, though, meant that the perpetrator most likely had a personal grievance with Darius and that the perpetrator was trying to humiliate him by stripping him of his clothes. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about the level of brutality. Like, maybe, maybe someone knew him. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Next, he read the statements that police had taken from various people in Darius's life. The one that stood out to him the most was the one that came from Darius's mom, who worked for his advertising agency. She said that she received a call around 930 in the morning from a man who wanted some signs made, but only wanted to speak to Darius. And since he wasn't in the office at the time, she gave the man his cell phone number and then the man just hung up. No identification. No nothing. Just hung up. Oh, mama, that was a mistake. <laughs> I feel like that was bad. Later, when Darius got back to the office, she asked him if she had, or she asked him if he had gotten a call from the customer, and he said that he had gotten a call and that he, they had arranged to meet that afternoon. When Darius left that afternoon, he left his car in the parking lot, which was super unlike him because he always took it to meet with clients. And that's kind of the one thing that his receptionist noticed. She's like, why didn't he take his car with him? He always takes his own car to meet with clients. When investigators looked into the two phone calls, they found that they had both come from a payphone that was just down the street from the office. But this wasn't enough evidence to determine whether the calls came from the same person or if the caller was the perpetrator. Additionally, due to the fact that Darius was over six feet tall or 182 centimeters, Seven eaters. <laughs> Seven eaters. <laughs> Additionally, due to the fact that Darius was over six feet tall or 182 centimeters and more than 200 pounds or 91 kilos, Roblevsky was unsure if this was the work of one person or more than one person because lifting a man of his size by yourself can be quite difficult if you're not also a man of that size. Something that Roblevsky realized as he studied the files over the next few days was that Darius's phone had never been found. And though the technology was a little behind in Poland at the time, he really wanted to see if the phone could be traced because that would be a great clue for them. Although the phone had not been used since the day 
that Darius disappeared, the department's telecommunications specialist was able to track the serial number on a cell phone because they got it off of the receipt that Darius's wife had given them. And to their surprise, they found a match. I'm I'm really glad that this policeman came in to the picture because clearly they weren't doing enough before. I know. Clearly like, when the case went cold, they weren't looking into all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, so I'm glad he like seemed to have like gone above and beyond to figure out what happened. Yeah. So the cell phone had been sold on an auction website four days after Darius went missing by someone with the username Chris B bracket seven bracket. So to fast forward a bit, it turns out that Chris B open bracket seven close bracket was a local. (laughs) (laughs) I swear that's the username. (laughs) That is. (laughs) Uh, It was a local intellectual by the name of Christian Bala. Um, A local intellectual? Hold on. Yeah, just wait. Just wait. (laughs) (laughs) So when Riley asked me to do this part of the script, she asked me to introduce the detective and she asked me to introduce this guy. The detective's part was very small. It's one paragraph. It's short and sweet. And I was very happy. I was like, oh, she's not having me do very much. This is great for me. I'm going to be able to go to bed earlier. And then she asked me to do this part. And I was like, holy moly. (laughs) Holy bananas. This guy is ridiculous. Yeah. Let's dive into him. So Bala was incredibly intelligent. He graduated high school at the top of his class. And then he then... And, and then he then. And then he then <laughs> studied. <laughs> he then studied philosophy at the University of Ratswa from 1992 to 1997, where he would often show up for incredibly difficult exams, hungover, or sometimes even still a little drunk from the night before. And he would still get the highest score on all of his exams. Wouldn't that be nice? I've never done that before. <laughs> Shown up to an exam hungover or still drink never maybe that's the trick never oh oh that was sarcasm on my on my part i i have oh. done that i've taken exams <laughs> <from her. laughs> i've definitely done that i studied english i wrote a hell of a lot of essays and a good portion of them were written with a glass of wine next to me so or two yeah a good portion of mine were written after uh a night Your out fleet night at, at Redbox. <laughs> so me and Riley would get home. I'd be like, I need to write this. We'd sit there eating noodles, like these frozen noodle bowls, and I'd finish my essays, and then we would just hang out. But it was always entertaining. And I always had a quiz due. I'm like, this quiz is due by midnight. <laughs> hey, we did well. So I graduated. So we all graduated. Yeah. Most of the stories. If you're at university, alcohol's fine. <laughs> Must have been doing something right. Be safe. Be safe. <laughs> don't 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 be completely stupid. Don't drive drunk or anything like that. But you know, if you need s- some booze to write an essay, you gotta do what you gotta do. I'm not here to judge. No. If you're not hurting anyone or yourself, who gives a shit? We will judge other people like the murderers in these episodes i don't judge him for showing up to his exams hungover or drunk i judge him for no. the other things yeah oh there's <laughs> other things okay okay let's hear him so bala was pretty aggressive in his study of philosophy like he he shoved philosophy down his throat 
He filled his parents' house with stacks and stacks and stacks of books. Their, his parents' basement was like a storage facility for philosophy books. He was particularly inclined towards Friedrich Nietzsche's and Ludwig Wittgenstein's schools of thought. He would even refer to Wittgenstein as my master. It's worth noting here, we are going to get philosophical in this episode because it's extremely important to the story. Wittgenstein was a very analytical philosopher who worked on logic as well as the philosophy of things like mathematics, mind, and language. Language, in particular, he saw as a social activity comparable to a game of chess. Nietzsche's philosophy states that facts don't actually exist, only interpretations exist, and truths are illusions which have forgotten that they are illusions. Food for thought. Oh, wow. Oh, God. <laughs> Did you guys take any philosophy classes no, at university? No, no absolutely not. No. no. I had to. I was forced to. So I have some opinions about him, but I'll get into it in just a second. <laughs> okay. Bala was so dedicated to his study of philosophy that when he would go with his father to France for the summers to work some labor jobs in order to earn money for his education, he would bring heaps of books with him and work through the day and study through the night. He admired other philosophers like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, and Richard Rorty. Over time, he started to weave together all of these different philosophies to create his own. And he took this a step further by using his schools of thought to try and create his own reality by convincing his peers about things that never happened in his life, like a romance with a schoolmate or an adventure in Paris. It was like a game of philosophical telephone. He would tell one person a lie about his life, and that person would tell other people and... Uh, Essentially, he would be creating his own reality. And he had a name for this. He called it mytho-creativity. I call it being a, a pathological, pathological liar. liar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I, took, I had to take two philosophy classes when I was at university um, because I transferred from one university to another and not all my credits transferred because not all of the classes were the same. And so I had to redo some of like the BS credits that you have to do in your first two years of school, which was stupid. Um, so I got those done, like in order to avoid my math credit, I took logic and then I also took just like philosophy 101. It wasn't any big deal, but there were definitely people like this guy in that class and philosophy students. I feel like there are two types of philosophy students. They are either really cool people or they are absolutely insufferable. And there is no, there is no middle ground <sighs> with philosophy students. I can't imagine there would be. No. I mean, there I've met definitely some... You have to be a certain kind of person to be that interested in philosophy. No offense to any philosophers. Yeah. But there's definitely a certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Personality type mm -hmm. that enjoys philosophy. And mine is not that type. Mine is no. also not that type because if I think too much about like this shit, I'll just have a panic attack. <laughs> because My I philosophy is that I just don't care. Me. Yeah, same. The big philosophical questions of like, why are we here? What does it all mean? What does it matter? I just don't care. I'm here. So I'm just going to live. If you care and you want to spend your time thinking about those things, go ahead. That's none of my business. You do you. But the, the, the people that do take time out of their lives to, can you hear the dog? No. Mark! The... <laughs> <laughs> why do you always do that? 
But the people who study philosophy at university, they tend to run into extremes. There were some really cool people in my philosophy classes, but there were also some people that I just wanted to punch out. So Reminds me of Chidi from The Good Place. <gasps> oh, he he's one of the good ones, but... But... But he's also the panic attack one. <laughs> yes. He's the panic attack philosopher. Oh, he's so sweet. I love Chidi. I love Chidi. Bala, though, was not a huge fan of Western philosophy, and he believed that the so-called truths about freedom that the West was spouting were actually oppressive, and he wanted to use language in order to break free from that oppression. Bala liked to brag to people around him about his trips to brothels and would proclaim, I will not live long, but I will live furiously, which a lot of his peers thought was really childish and stupid, but others thought was just like the most inspired shit they've ever heard in their lives. So I'll stick to reading beat poetry. I'm not going <laughs> to listen to this dude. Yeah. And I feel like just that one part about, you know, half the peers were like, you're stupid. And the other were like, oh my God, you're amazing. That like really shows the two extremes of uh, the philosophy students. Just in my experience with interacting with philosophy majors. I try not to interact with them. Sorry, I'm kidding. I've just never met any. <laughs> I'm kidding. My, I had the same professor for both philosophy classes, and he was awesome. He was such a cool, chill dude. He would not allow any of us to call him professor or Mr. Anything. He was like, my name is John. You call me John. That's it. I will not respond to anything else. And uh, he would always joke about, yeah, he would be like, yeah, this is coffee in my mug. Wink, wink. <laughs> okay john <laughs> and then he would tell us about his russian wife and toddler and he just had a he had a lot of stories john has lived i love that john has lived and i i hated his classes just because i didn't like the subject matter but he was fantastic he was a great professor in 1995 bala married his high school sweetheart whom he called stasia she was his polar opposite. She had dropped out of high school, she was working as a secretary, and she had absolutely no interest in philosophy or language. Bala's mother actually opposed their marriage, but Bala insisted that he wanted to care for her. Two years later, they had a son, and Bala graduated with the highest marks possible and enrolled in the PhD program, for which he received a full scholarship. But despite not having to pay for his schooling, he was having trouble feeding his family, and so he had to drop out. He opened a cleaning business and soon discovered that he was a lousy businessman. Instead of investing the money he made back into his company, he would spend it. And by the year 2000, he had gone bankrupt. And I mean, he would have left school in what, 1998, probably? Yeah. So this, this business would have been at most two years old. And he went bankrupt Who just so spends quickly. their profit? <laughs> Why, like, you invest everything back into the business and then you keep the extra. Yeah. This, like, he's so intelligent. How can he not figure that out? I don't, I have never studied business in my life and I know this. I know. Maybe he was just, like, so, he was just, like, making up stuff about his life and he had convinced himself. So he just. Mm, he's like, I can talk him. myself out of anything. I can create my own reality through language. He was so. the main character. <laughs> Oh, he is such a main character. I am too. So along with the failing business, he was also cheating on his wife very regularly. And so naturally, their marriage also went out of business. <laughs> naturally. 
Oh, God. So after the divorce, Stasia took their son and Bala was just like, all right, I'm out. And he traveled to the U.S. and then he spent some time in Asia. Which countries? I have no idea. But he taught English and scuba diving. I also have no idea where the hell he learned how to scuba dive. <laughs> I really just cannot picture this guy scuba diving. I have a very know, cool right? vision of what he is like in my brain. And scuba diving is nowhere near it. Uh, and it was also during this time that he started writing his passion project. So now I'm also going to fast forward a little bit. And in 2005, so Bella was just talking about 2000. In 2005, Roblevsky received an anonymous phone call that suggested that he read a book titled Amok by Christian Bala. This was the first book that Bala had published. And let me tell you, it was creepy. I am not surprised. So the premise of this book is that the main character and narrator, Chris, is left by his wife after cheating and then basically goes on a bender. A little while later, he begins dating a woman named Mary. But in the end, he kills her in this like sexual arousal way to defy one of the moral truths, i.e. his obsession with philosophy. And while Roblevsky is reading this, he's like, um, that's suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> that's weird. <sighs> because the murder in the book is very similar to the cold case of Darius Yanashevsky that he has been working on. In the book, Chris, the main character, ties his girlfriend Mary's hands together behind her back and then wraps the rope around her neck and tightens it like a noose. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Very. And then she was stabbed to death and thrown in a river in Wrocław. I mean... And then another detail that was in the book. Mary was stabbed with a Japanese knife and then Chris, the narrator, sells the knife on an internet auction website. Just like how Darius's phone was sold. And this detail about the phone being, like, sold on this auction website was a detail that was never released to the public. So this man, he, he wanted some attention. He wanted people to know he did this. Like, guys, basically... Guys, theory. Definitely not true. Definitely not true. But I okay. have to say it. This theory. happened in December 2000. Yes. <laughs> a Japanese knife sold in December 2000. What if it was bought from the by the killer in Japan? Oh my, Japan, Japan, oh my Japan. god! <sighs> it's all connected. So nuts. That's it's all why conspiracy. That's why there was views in Japan about this case. They were like, "Oh my god!" It was all the detectives. It was the like quarter million people working on that case, being like, "Is it connected to the case in Poland?" <laughs> no, but wait, the, that was in the book that the Japanese knife was sold. Oh, damn it. Oh, I thought I just cracked this wide open. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Roblevsky knew he needed more evidence than just what he had read in the book. So what he did was he printed off copies of the book and he handed out different chapters to people in his department and made everyone in his department read a different chapter and, like, look through them in hopes that 
they would find anything else that would help the case. He was like, decipher everything, look into the philosophy. But while you're doing so, make sure that you don't alert Bala to the fact that we're looking into him because he's living out of the country. And so they wanted him to come back into the country at some point because they wanted to arrest him, but they had to like secretly and discreetly build their profile without alerting him so that he wouldn't like, you know, flee. What they had so far were similarities between Bala and the main character, Chris. Both of them were obsessed with philosophy and they had been abandoned by their wives and they drank too much as they traveled the world. Bala? (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me, what? (laughs) Robleski was also You don't need to roast me like that. (laughs) Robleski was also able to obtain a police report from when Bala was detained like years before because him and his friend were very drunk they broke into a church and they stole a saint anthony figure to drink with and then they got caught and they were arrested because they wanted a third person to drink with i don't know and then as me drinking with my cardboard (laughs) cutouts honestly that just brings me back to quarantine um I would just like pretend I had I I because I live alone, so I quarantined alone. And so I just kinda had to pretend like I had drinking buddies. I wasn't not gonna drink during quarantine. I was lonely. Oh yeah. And while Roblevsky's reading this police report, he's like, I've heard this story before. And it's because the exact same scene is portrayed in Christian's book. He literally wrote the scene into his book, except it was the main character, Chris who did this. And so to Vroblevsky, it seems as if this book is like an autobiography, but he also needs that he, he knows that he needs more than like some book similarities to charge Bala. So he kept going, but also one, one other thing that I wanted to mention, I didn't write it down, but I just thought of it in, as I was doing my research, there were like, after the book was published, there were like forums where people could go on and like chat about the book, kind of like Reddit and stuff. And they found on Bala's computer that he had created profiles under the name of Chris and would reply to people as if he was the main character, like replying to these people in the in the chat rooms and on these forums. Is this genius or is this insanity? (laughs) (laughs) No one can tell. But but to but to Roblevsky, he was like, well, to me, that shows that like. There is no discernment between Bala and this main character. They are the same person. But even though he didn't have that many similarities, he couldn't be stopped from arresting him. So when he learned that Bala would be visiting in September, he took the opportunity and arrested him on September 5th, 2005. Now, just another side note. For some reason, after being arrested, Bala came up with this, like, big, long story about how he was attacked outside of a drugstore and he was handcuffed and beaten before having a bag put over his head and being shoved into a car. And then he said that the men drove for a while and then stopped and they said something about burying him. But then they got back in the car and kept driving. And then they took them into this building, but he didn't know where he was. He just knew that he had walked into a building because he couldn't feel the sun and he couldn't feel the wind. <laughs> Because there's there's a bag still over his head, apparently. And that's when he finally realized that he was in police custody and was being questioned by a man named J. 
Jack Sparrow. <laughs> but the um the reporter in that article had a quote from Roblowski and he was like, no, none of that happened. We arrested him like normal and brought him in. He knew exactly where he was. And so Roblowski interrogated him like normal. And when he brought up Darius, Bala said that he didn't know who he was and that Roblowski was taking his book far too literally. And even though there were factual elements from his life, him and Chris were not the same person. When Roblevsky brought up Darius's cell phone that Bala had sold online through an auction website, Bala claimed that he didn't remember because it was five years ago and that he probably bought it at a pawn shop like he had apparently done several times in the past, like just bought cell phones at pawn shops and then sold it on the internet for, for some reason. I don't know. Either way, he agreed to take a polygraph (laughs) about the case. Um, All of the questions were related to Darius, and Bala answered no to every single one of them. Periodically, Bala seemed to intentionally slow his breathing, a skill that he had learned from scuba diving. And the person who was administering the polygraph kind of like suspected that he might be trying to manipulate the test because it didn't seem like because it did seem like he was lying on some of his answers, like he would like purposely take a breath and then answer to like, you know, skew the test. But the results unfortunately came back inconclusive, which I mean, polygraphs can't always be trusted 100%, but it's no, nice to have unreliable. Something. I don't even know why we do them. Yeah. Like they can't be, they're not admissible in court. Why do we do them? I yeah. don't know. We're like the guilt aspect who knows i guess maybe it could like if they fail one uh they could like start to feel the pressure and they could crack i don't know yeah yeah like if they were told that they failed it or something um in poland kind of like similar to here you can't hold someone for more than 48 hours without charging them so roblevsky was able to charge bala but only for selling stolen property the phone and for an unrelated bribe that he had uncovered through his investigation it was something with business and it had nothing to do with it but it was something that he could charge him with and while it wasn't much um and it probably wouldn't warrant jail time it was enough to keep him in the country which was what they wanted because then he couldn't flee he had his passport taken away and that gave vroblevsky an opportunity to look through his passport while flipping through it he noticed that they were stamps from south korea the united states and japan and if you remember, those are the same countries that the television program about the murder had views from that they thought was a little weird. So Roblevsky cross-referenced the dates on the stamps and the views. And guess what? They freaking matched. This guy is obsessed with himself. I know. God. Uh. This guy is the main character and he knows it. He's a, oh. he's a terrible main character. I don't like him. <laughs> Huh. He's the main character and the author. In a story that no that one wants him- to read. I know. <laughs> Meanwhile, while this is going on, there was like a huge outrage about the case because people were mad that the only evidence that police had was the book and the phone. And almost every person that police questioned described Bala as being like an overall good person. Apparently. <laughs> Um, but 
Rublevsky was his wife. Like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Rublevsky wasn't worried, though, and he continued to explore different theories. One theory was that Darius and Bala were in a relationship and that Bala killed Darius due to internalized homophobia because there's a part in this in, in his book where Chris's friend comes out as gay and Chris thought to himself that he wanted to, quote, strangle him with a rope and then, quote, chop a hole in a frozen river and dump him there, which is fucked up in itself yeah, what the okay fuck? Oh, we don't God. stand for that no but when Roblevsky looked further into it he found absolutely no sign that bala nor darius were gay so he kind of threw that threw that theory out the window and the second theory kind of helped cancel that theory out as well uh the second theory or kind of more in a, of an observation came from information that uh Roblevsky got from interviewing people close to bala Apparently, after he and his wife separated in 2000, he was still, like, super possessive over her, and he would check her phone records and, like, keep an eye on her, which is, like, so creepy and not at all okay. And at a New Year's Eve party that they went to, Bala thought that a bartender was flirting with his wife, Stasia, and, quote, went crazy, saying that he would, quote, take care of the bartender as he had, quote, already dealt with such a guy. And then it took five people to restrain him. So was he like a big guy too then? Five people? Or was he just crazy? He's just okay. nuts. Okay. And this is a New Year's Eve party. Keep that in mind. So this is the end of December. And Darius went missing at the beginning of December. That same year. As Roblevsky investigated that lead, members of his team started their efforts to trace those two calls that were made to Darius's office and his cell phone the day that he went missing. You know, that guy that wanted signs and hung up. Um, in Poland at the time, payphones were operated using, like, a personal card that each person carried on them. Like, you could buy them and then you just use that card over and over. Um, oh, like how you and, use, uh, like, public trains and stuff? Yeah, yep. Yeah. And the cards were embedded with a unique number that registered with the phone company when you use them. So the team was able to determine the number on the card. And they found that over a three-month period, 32 calls had been made using that same card. And these calls included calls to Bala's parents, his girlfriend, a business associate, and his friends. All connected to Bala. Roblevsky's team uncovered another link shortly after this one as well. While interviewing people close to Bala again, they spoke to his ex-wife's friend, Malgorzada. Malgorzada said that in the summer of 2000, her and Stasia went to a nightclub where she saw Stasia speaking to a man with long hair and bright blue eyes, which she recognized as Darius because she had like seen him around town and stuff. The detectives knew that Stasia would not want to speak with them as she hadn't the entire investigation. So Roblevsky approached her with passages from the book that involved Chris's wife, Sonia. She must have noticed some similarities between her relationship and the one in the book because she finally agreed to talk to them. She said that she had met Darius while ordering fries that night at the nightclub, and they ended up talking the whole night. He gave her 
his number and they went on another date where they checked into a hotel. But when they got there, Darius admitted that he was married and Stasia, having been in the position that Darius's wife was in, decided to leave because she didn't want to do that to another woman, which I respect that. I respect that, Stasia. Several weeks later, Bala got like way too drunk and broke down the front door at Stasia's house and struck her. Like he's like this angry, jealous, drunk guy. Oh, God. He said that he knew that she had had an affair with Darius because he had hired a private investigator to follow her. He said that he also knew where Darius worked and that he had been to his office before and even described it to Stasia to prove that he had been there. When Stasia found out that Darius was missing, she asked Bala if he had anything to do with it, and he said no, and even though he was crazy. She didn't think that he was capable of murder, so she believed him. Big mistake. Mm-hmm. Rublevsky now thought that he had enough evidence to charge Bala and go to court. And so that's what they did. They went to court. Bala's trial didn't begin until two years later on February 22nd, 2007, because obviously it took a while to get all this evidence. But when it did, the courtroom was flooded with the public who wanted to attend. And there was like a bunch of different people. You know, there was philosophers because Bala was this philosophy guy. They wanted to hear all the stuff and then people who just wanted to be involved. And honestly, uh, this sounds like a trial that I would have also wanted to attend because along with everyone else there in the center of the courtroom was a nine foot tall and 20 foot long cage or 2.7 meter tall and six feet six feeder six meter long cage with thick ass metal bars where christian bala stood during his trial this reminds well, me that this reminds me of um the trial of igor kakarov in harry potter um mm-hmm. when they show that like that is what i'm imagining have i gotten to that part yet yeah Isn't it's in the, the fourth oh yeah okay, fourth cool. He, Bala, was facing up to 25 years in prison, which definitely wasn't long enough, but that's a whole other problem. And people said that he just sat there calmly, taking notes or staring out at the spectators during the trial, which is so freaking creepy. Oh, no, no, nope. But the thing that makes this trial really interesting, though, is its parallels with Amok. The prosecution's argument followed the story. Like the protagonist, Chris, Bala was a vile hedonist without any moral conscience who had murdered in a jealous fit of rage. They presented files from Bala's computer, which was protected with the password, a mock, real fucking original, such an intellectual. <laughs> wow, I'm so impressed. He's so with himself. I cannot. Oh, God. He's such a narcissist. On his computer, they found over 70 detailed descriptions of sexual encounters with different women which included his ex-wife, an older cousin, and the mother of a friend, an encounter which Bala described as old-ass hardcore action. Thank you. I hate it. (laughs) 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 I just can't with this guy. But the most interesting part was an email that the prosecution found, which Bala had sent to his wife, which said, Life is not only screwing, darling. Says the guy who wrote details descriptions. Of, literally. Also, he's literally up to the women. Like, come on. 
and he's obsessed with who his ex-wife may or may not be who his ex-wife may or may not be sleeping with like get out of here (laughs) but that email directly reflects a line that chris says in the book which is fucking is not the end of the world mary they're the same person it's like an autobiography fiction (laughs) literally this is an autobiography disguised as fiction i swear The prosecution also had a psychologist testify who said that while every author puts parts of themselves in their characters and in their story, Bala and Chris shared, quote, sadistic qualities. Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd agree. In Poland, people on trial are actually allowed to ask questions to those who are on the stand in order to help their defense, which I find very interesting. Uh, And Bala was real happy to do this. I bet he was. Yeah, he was very happy to do it. And he poked holes in people's testimonies so much by manipulating their own words against him. Because remember, he's a master of language and creating his own reality through language. I'm so freaking smart. (laughs) But despite all his efforts, despite all his philosophical arguments, and despite his complaints that the prosecution was misinterpreting his novel in order to convict him... Evidence mounted and mounted against him. And in the end, Bala never took the stand. And when the trial went to jury, he said he was confident that they would make the right decision and absolve him of all the charges. The arrogance. If he's innocent, then take the stand, my dude. Like, why wouldn't you want to take the stance to try and prove your own innocence? Because he's the main character. That's why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He doesn't need to. The trial lasted seven months from February until September. And Bala was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Again, still not enough, but he was still guilty. He still maintains his innocence, but I thought the case against him was pretty strong. I mean, that much rage breaking down the front door. Come on. Come on. A mock is an autobiography. You cannot convince me otherwise. Same. The author of one of these articles that I was using to um, gather, you know, information for this case um, actually visited him in prison in Poland and interviewed him there. And in the interview, Bala said that he was working on a second book, but his only copy of it was on his computer that the police had seized. So he was trying to get the copy of his book back. But on that same computer... Police also found that Bala had been collecting information on Stasia, his ex-wife's new boyfriend, Harry. And they thought that Harry was Bala's next target. And that is what the second book was going to be based off of had he not gone to prison. Because there was like a lot of information on Harry, like where he was going, where he lived, like what he did during the day. Bala still insists, though that he's going to finish it and that it is quote going to be even more shocking fuck off bala i do want to read that <laughs> i do i tried to find like um a summary and stuff of the book online but everything was in polish so i don't and i don't think that the book has ever been translated into english unfortunately well, what a case yeah. Can someone who uh, speaks Polish please translate it for us? We would love you forever. <laughs> or just tell us. We can it. do a read aloud. It'd be so nice. <laughs> I know. I don't, right? I don't want to give him that um, that much satisfaction. 
You'd <laughs> be so excited. At least, at least, like, it would spare people buying it, which, yeah, I mean, I assume right? it still makes money off of the book. Well, a lot of a lot of um, bookstores in Poland refused to carry the book because that's how bad it was. Because it was so like sadistic and horrible and awful, they didn't even carry the book on their shelves. And if they did, they put the book on the top shelf, like the very top shelf of their bookshelves, so that little kids couldn't grab it. Oh, good, clever. <laughs> but we also have some more exciting news. Last week or the week before. We announced that we had started our Patreon, and we have two patrons. We have the beautiful, amazing, talented Joy, who is amazing and talented and we beautiful, and we love her so much. I love you so much. Ange- Angelica's sister. Yes. And we also have Jessica, also be- beautiful, amazing, talented. We love you so much. Thank you for being our patrons, and we are going to have some fun stuff going up on patreon very soon so if you want to hear extra cases and um some red eye tipsy episodes that we're gonna do <laughs> yes head over there or you can find us on our social medias our instagram and our twitter are at true crime intl and you can find our group on facebook by searching true crime international in the little search bar Uh, We really hope you've liked this episode and we really hope you've enjoyed your stay here at True Crime International. Bye.